We're in uh, Romans. If you're here with us for the first time today, we are uh, well into a sermon, a series through the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And this morning we are in Romans chapter 10, uh, beginning at verse 11 and running through verse 21. You know, one of the questions I receive occasionally from Christians is, is this, why is it that the people in my life whom I love and for whom I pray consistently and fervently, uh, people who have heard and understood the gospel message, still refuse to bend their knee and transfer their trust to Jesus from their own morality, their own religiosity, uh, or even from just a, I'll take my chances kind of attitude. Um, and, And usually when they're asking the question, their hearts are broken because they are obviously deeply concerned for the eternal salvation of, of their loved ones, and, and their minds sometimes are confused because they've done everything they know to do. Um, they've, they've prayed, uh, they've loved, they've tried to allow Christ to be seen in their lives, they've shared the gospel as best they know how, and all of that without a positive faith response. In today's scripture passage, Paul is still communicating, still still dealing with that thought in his own life because of the fact that most of Israel, his countrymen, most of the Jews, have failed to receive Jesus as Messiah, in fact, have blatantly rejected him. You may recall Paul's words in the first three verses of chapter 9. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. You ever prayed a prayer like that? You ever been in that kind of intense agony for someone's salvation that that you would forfeit your own eternal salvation, be forever separated from God if only they could come to know him, put their faith in Christ? Again, in the first verses of chapter 10, Paul wrote, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may may be saved. My heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. What we're going to hear this morning uh, is more of that. And and what we're going to hear is Paul's assessment of the fundamental reasons why this situation exists, that, that Israel has not received Jesus, not even recognized him as Messiah. He's already given us two reasons. In chapter 9, verses 30 to 32, he said that they pursued a righteousness based on works, not on faith. And in 10.3, he told us that they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. And in that ignorance, they sought to establish their own, did not submit to God and his plan of salvation. They, they said, well, I'm going to do it my way. Self-styled religion, uh, not uncommon, very common to humanity, very common to people today. You may, be, you may have wondered at, at one time or another, what's the deal with Israel? And what's the relationship of Israel to the church? Um, What's God's plan for Israel? Does he have a continuing plan 
for Israel. Every day, I mean, if, you're, if you watch the news like I do every day, uh, because the news is more interesting than what anything else that's on television these days, um, you know, you, you, Israel's talked about every day. It's the center of the news every day. It's the center of the world, Israel. So what's God's plan for the Jews? And that's what Paul's really dealing with here in chapters 9 through 11. And in, and in that, he's also laying out, again, in, in real depth, the message of the gospel. So this morning, he continues the discussion. Let's stand and read our scripture together. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is God's word. You may be seated. I just want to make the note as we get into this that that Paul has some hard words for his kin. He has hard words for Israel. But all of those hard words are out of love, out of concern. And none of what we read or talk about today should be construed by any of us as endorsing an anti-Semitic stance. God loves the Jews. He's called them. We're going to see in in the next weeks that we are grafted into Israel, that uh, God has added us to the people uh, uh, on whom he has placed his affection. And, And he still has a plan for the nation of Israel. This passage begins with a quotation from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And in fact, uh, in just 11 verses, there are no less than 10 Old Testament references or direct quotations here in this passage. So the first is, is Isaiah 28, 16, which says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And Paul translates that appropriately, will not be 
put to shame. It's important to understand that the, the historical context in which God first spoke these words through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 28 was one of warning and impending judgment. As Paul referenced these words, his Jewish readers would have heard them that way. They would have remembered the context in which those words were first spoken. He's already quoted this same text at the close of chapter 9, where he asserted that the Jews stumbled over the stumbling stone, referring to Jesus. In this case, he's using this one line to make a positive point. While unbelievers stumble over this stumbling stone, those who instead believe in this precious cornerstone, this sure foundation, this Jesus Christ, this Yeshua HaMashiach, will not stumble, will not be disappointed, will not be put to shame. And next he points out that this applies to everyone, whether Jew or Greek. Broaden out that word Greek to Gentile. Neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither... um, may sound familiar to you because Paul uses similar language in his first letter to the churches of Galatia, where he says that this absence of distinctions is especially and specifically true in the church among those who believe. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. That doesn't mean that a Jew stops being a Jew or that a Greek stops being a Greek or a Gentile stops being a Gentile. It may not mean that a slave ever in their lifetime is liberated. And it doesn't mean that we stop being male or female. Perish that thought. But he says those distinctions go away in the church in the sense that we are all one. We're all one. Rich and poor. Slave or free. Regardless of your ethnicity. Here in Romans 10, Paul's not commenting about the church, though. He's He's talking about something that preceded the church. He's making clear that Forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God is universally available to anyone, whether Jew or Gentile, through faith in Jesus Christ. And each of these first three verses, verses 11 to 13, refers to Christ. Stresses that Christ is not only easily accessible, but equally accessible to all, to anyone and to everyone, because there is no distinction. There is no favoritism with God. Each describes in differing terms both the nature of faith and and how Christ responds to those who believe. In verse 11, we trust in him and we will never be put to shame. In verse 12, we call on him and he richly blesses us. In verse 13, we call on the name of the Lord and we are saved. Again, Romans 10, 11 to 13, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. 
For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will you say that out loud with me? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's say it again. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 13 echoes the prophet Joel, who wrote regarding things that will come to pass in the last days. Joel 2.32, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he's looking forward to the time when, when Christ, having accomplished his work, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church. And in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, when that thing happened, when that prophecy was fulfilled and the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church with signs and wonders, the Apostle Peter quoted from the same passage, to explain to Jewish observers that what was happening on that day was, in fact, the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. What they had read, what they had maybe not understood, but what they had hoped for had come true. And in time, this expression had become so widespread in the church, so characteristic of Christian people that in his letter to the church in Corinth, Paul could describe the worldwide community of believers as those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Well, what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? We don't usually use that kind of terminology. What does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? Well, let's go first to Acts 4, verses 11 to 12. It's recorded in Acts 4 that Peter and John were brought before the rulers and the um, elders of the people to give an account for their proclamation of Jesus as Messiah and Lord. And in the course of his response, Peter said to them, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Think about standing before the Sanhedrin and saying those words. Bold, courageous. So to call upon the name of the Lord is first to recognize who Jesus is. And then to acknowledge who he is. To affirm that, to receive it, to accept it. To acknowledge what he's done through his death and burial and resurrection, to acknowledge our need for him, and then to ask him on that basis to save us from our sins. And when we do that, according to the promise of God's word, we are saved. Our sins are forgiven, and we're reconciled to God. Regardless of who we are, regardless of who our parents were, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, 
regardless of what we have done or not done, on the basis of the promise of God, the sure word of God, we are saved. And this is what it means to believe in Jesus. Paul immediately follows that amazing news with a practical problem. How will the Jews who have not believed in Jesus ever call on him to be saved? And I just have to believe that that was constantly on Paul's mind and heart. Constantly. So he develops that thought in verses 14 to 17. And as he does, he gives us an overview of the work of evangelism, which simply stated is the communication of the gospel to those who do not yet know Jesus Christ. Beginning of verse 14, he writes, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now I want to begin where Paul ends in this section. At the close of this description of the need for evangelism of the Jews and the process by which people come to believe in Jesus as their Savior, Paul makes this statement. Faith comes through hearing the word of Christ. Would you say that with me? Faith comes through hearing the word of Christ. Implicit to what is required for our justification before God is to have faith awakened in us. That thing has to happen. And it happens through hearing the word of Christ. Paul is not simply saying, I don't think that we need to hear the word about Christ. We certainly do need to hear about Christ. But I think what Paul is saying here is that we need to hear Christ himself speaking personally to us, awakening faith in us through the message of the gospel. Remember what Paul himself said in in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, what is really kind of a theme verse for the whole letter, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is, it is the power of God to salvation, for salvation, to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So in that moment when you're hearing the gospel and you're feeling the tug of the Holy Spirit to believe in Jesus, I think that's what Paul is referring here to. That that Christ himself is speaking directly into your heart. You say, well, isn't he an awfully busy man? Yes, but he's not so busy that he doesn't know you. And in the proclamation of the gospel and hearing the gospel and responding, Christ is speaking. And as he speaks, he's doing what he said, he's doing to you what he said to Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. And you're transferred from death to life. 
So Paul wants us, his readers, to spend a little time thinking about what is necessary if anyone's going to have that experience. And in line with verse 13, Paul says first that they must call. That is, they must call on the name of the Lord. Calling on the name of Jesus presupposes that they know his name, not just his given name. I was in a Mexican restaurant in Edmonds with my family a few years ago, and and when the check was placed in front of me, I was a little startled by something on the receipt because it told me that for the past two hours, we had been waited on by a server whose name was Jesus. All in caps, J-E-S-U-S, your server has been Jesus. I looked and saw him across the way, and I went, no, Jesus. So it's not just a name, is it? It's the name of Jesus Christ, God's Son, our Savior, the only one who can save us from our sins. But Paul appropriately then makes the point that they must believe. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Since belief that leads to salvation is presented as calling on the name of Jesus Christ, the kind of belief that Paul must have in mind here is believing who Jesus is, believing that Jesus is who he said he is. And that he has accomplished all that is necessary for our salvation. He hasn't left anything out. He's died as the all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. He was buried and he's been raised again from the dead. Declared in that by God the Father to be his son. In order for them to believe, they must hear that message. How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? For belief to take hold, ignorance ignorance has to be overcome. People have to hear the story of Jesus. They need to receive a credible telling of the gospel message. If you've been around here for any length of time, you may have heard me say this, but about 11 years ago, when we were getting ready to launch LifePoint, I was doing a lot of reading about demographics of our area, and I happened on to a study uh, from a university back east, a Christian university, in which they were trying to identify which portion of the country, which, which areas in the country um, had the uh, least awareness of even the basic tenets of the gospel based on people's own reporting. And so they did these nationwide surveys. And what they came up in that particular study was that the region of the United States in which there were the least, the lowest percentage of people who had ever heard the gospel, ever heard it, was southwest Washington State. And it reminded me powerfully in that moment that we don't have to go anywhere to to, to be in contact with an unreached people group. We're in it. The message must be communicated. I think so often that our our contemporary 
models for evangelism are far too hurried, far too formulaic, far too lacking in substance. If someone has simply never heard the story, those blanks need to get filled in, do they not? And so we're foolish to assume that that everyone has heard the message of the gospel so that all we really need to do is throw some verses at them and ask them to make a decision. You cannot and should not make a decision to surrender control of your life to anyone on the basis of information you simply do not possess. Story has to be told and someone must do the communicating. How then are they to hear without someone preaching? I want you to do something for me right now. I want you to say to yourself, the preaching that Paul is talking about here is not primarily from a pulpit. And it was never meant to be understood only as the work of pastors and evangelists. When I hear the word preacher, I think of an overweight guy in an uncomfortable suit and tie. Standing behind something like this. Think of the preaching Paul has in mind as simply everyday Christians communicating the message of the gospel to everyday people in their lives. There can be no hearers without communicators. And each of us is entrusted with communicating the gospel message to those around us who who will listen. And not all will listen. But that's why Paul says next that those communicators must be sent. And the Greek word that's translated sent here is, is the word apostello, and it's, it's the word from which we get the word apostle. And by simple definition, an apostle is simply someone who has been sent with a message for someone else. And in the early church, and in Jesus' administration of his kingdom, there was a small group of men, weren't there, that were called apostles. And none of us today are sent in the same way that they were, or with the same level of authority in the church, or we're in the spiritual realm, but we still carry out an apostolic ministry in the sense that the Great Commission is for every Christ follower in every age and in every community, young or old. You and I are equipped with the life-transforming power of God in the form of the simple message of the gospel, and we are expected to share it with the people in our lives. And when... Some with whom you shared the message of the gospel believe. Oh, they believed. When they call upon the name of the Lord and they are saved, they will thank you and bless you. And that's what's being expressed in the latter part of verse 15, where Paul adds, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. It's it's an ancient blessing. And I really love this verse because... I've never felt that my feet were particularly attractive. Paul's quoting Isaiah 52, 7. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Isn't that great? 
Call upon the name. My people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And most Old Testament prophecies have a, an immediate fulfillment and a future fulfillment. And Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 2 was a message of hope, happiness, salvation to Israelites who were in captivity in Babylon. Babylon. They were slaves there. They were being held in a place that was not home. And that was the immediate fulfillment. But of course, it also spoke to the future. The Lord was going to exercise his intervention for their detention break the power of their oppressor, and bring them home. If we were to reverse the order of Paul's six verbs in this section, we might see this argument more clearly. Christ sends communicators. Communicators share the gospel. People hear. Hearers believe, believers call upon the name of the Lord, and those who call are saved. Let me quickly put this another way and present each of these stages in the negative. Unless believers like you and I accept the commission to share the gospel, there will be no gospel communicators. Let me just pause right there. Because I do what I do, I I read a lot about the state of the church and the state of the mission of the church in our world, even in our nation. And what is happening in our nation today is that believers are sharing less and less the message of the gospel. And if there are no communicators of the gospel, how will we ever see this nation turn around? How will people ever come to know Christ? And I think we get cowed, don't we? I mean, we get cowed by the the prevailing philosophy of the day that, that all truth is relative. You have your truth, I have my truth. Don't tell me to change my truth for the sake of yours. My faith belief is just as valid as anybody else's. Or, or we get intimidated because we fear rejection or, or we get timid because we fear that we might give offense to someone we love and they'll never speak to us again. And I mean, all kinds of things go through our heads, don't, don't they? But unless the gospel is communicated, sinners will not hear Christ's message and voice. And unless they hear him, they will not believe the truths of his death and resurrection. And unless they believe these truths, they will not call on his name. And unless they call on his name, they will not be saved. And Paul, of all people, understood this urgency most clearly and felt it most personally with regard to his people, the Jews. And in verse 16, he gives a sobering status report. They have not all 
obeyed the gospel. Verses 16 to 17, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Notice Paul's choice of words here, will you? To choose disbelief in response to the gospel is to disobey God. Let me repeat that. To to choose disbelief in response to the gospel is to disobey God. And, And I can just hear someone saying, well, no, I'm not disobeying God. I just don't buy your story. Well, there went that option out the window. To choose disbelief in response to the gospel is to disobey God. This whole section in Romans 10 is about the Jewish response or non-response to the gospel. Their unbelief, Paul shows us in verse 16, was foretold by Isaiah in his rhetorical question, Lord, who has believed our message? And most Jewish people knew Isaiah 53. The Jewish readers of Paul's letter would have gone, Oh, yeah. That's a direct quote from the first verse of Isaiah 53. That great chapter in which Israel describes Messiah as the suffering servant who would come, who would be despised and rejected, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, by whose wounds we are healed. He also describes Israel's wholesale of reject, wholesale rejection of Jesus as their Messiah with such amazing clarity 700 years before it even happened. And yet they should have believed. Faith comes through hearing the word of Christ. Verse 17 echoes verse 14, but maybe, maybe there's still room for an out for Israel. Maybe there's still room for, for some excuses for their rejection of Messiah. And so Paul presents two pertinent possibilities. First he asks, has Israel heard? I mean, have they heard? How can they believe unless it's something they have not heard? Have they heard? His answer in verse 18, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. Indeed they have. Their voice goes, has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Quick answer. Paul says, indeed they have. And to illustrate his point, Paul offers an Old Testament text that at first doesn't seem to fit. It's Psalm 19, verse 4. Here it is in context. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day port. Uh, pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And so he's talking about uh, the universal witness of creation to the glory of God. And everybody can see it. He says there, there is no place, there is no... Country, there is no language in which that message is not understood. But Paul takes this passage in which the psalmist is referring to that and he applies it to the advance of the gospel. 
And he seems to be saying that, that, that this proclamation of the gospel, this communication of the gospel has now become, at this point as when he was writing this letter, has now become so widespread as the light emitted by the sun, moon, and the stars. And the gospel has been preached far and wide. The Jews have heard it. To the church in Colossae, Paul describes the message as the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Colossians 1.23. little hyperbole here, I'm, I, I think. We, we would admit that. But Paul's point is this, that, that, the, that through the apostolic witness, the witness of the apostles, the gospel has been proclaimed far and wide in the known world. And then through those who have believed the message, in turn sharing the message with others, the Jews have heard. They're without excuse. But perhaps there's another possible excuse for the Jews. Having heard, did Israel actually understand? Notice his response. He quotes, again, two Old Testament references. First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. That's a reference to Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. Then he goes to Isaiah. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. See, Israel understood because both the law and the prophets anticipated and celebrated the truth that God wanted to use Israel to reach the Gentiles and bring them into the family But they reneged on that. And now God is using another nation, other nations, Gentile nations, to provoke Israel to anger, jealousy. Paul asks his final question, and it's it's an implied question. You won't find it in the text. But it's this, did Israel seek God? Is Israel actually even seeking God? And his answer is this, but of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. For millennia, 24-7, I've been reaching out to these people. These disobedient and contrary people people. Why then didn't Israel receive Jesus as their Messiah? What's he saying? How do we summarize it? It can't be because they didn't hear. The proclamation of the gospel had spread far and wide throughout the known world. It can't be that they didn't understand. They had the law and the prophets. They understood the nature of God, the need for righteousness, the promise of forgiveness by a substitutionary sacrifice that was rehearsed every day in the temple courts that foreshadowed the coming of Messiah. 
the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. They had the promises and the prophecies regarding Messiah, especially that the Lord could become our righteousness, that that the Lord would become righteousness for us. They should have understood. It can't be that they weren't searching for God because as God himself said through Isaiah, he was ready to be sought even by those who didn't ask for him and ready to be found even by those who didn't seek him. And he had extended his hands to Israel, who, who purportedly was, were seeking him, pursuing a relationship with him. He said, all day, every day, all day long, I've held out my hands to Israel. And here's where Paul arrives, the bottom line is that they didn't respond to God, they didn't receive Jesus as their Messiah, the Christ, because of this one thing, they were rebellious and disobedient. You see, it's not an intellectual problem. It's not an intellectual problem. It's a problem of the heart and the will. God had not previously held out his hands to the Gentiles in the same way that he did to the Jews, and yet the Gentiles responded in the way that Israel should have, so that Israel is without excuse. I need to land this plane and wrap this up, but let me ask this question. What about you? You might be here today and you haven't made up your mind about Jesus because you think you've got plenty of time and it's really your choice anyway. What's your excuse for not acknowledging Jesus for who he is? The Son of God, the Savior of the world. What's your excuse for not receiving him as the one who, the only one who can forgive your sins? the only one who's worthy of your obedience. How will you respond to Jesus? By the way, in saying this, not a matter of the intellect. That's not a celebration of ignorance. The Bible's a pretty intellectual book in point of fact. We need to apply our minds. But ultimately, it's a question of our hearts. Ultimately, it's a question of our will. Will we bow our knee to anyone, let alone God? So how will you answer the question, what have you done with Jesus? You, you've heard. Let's assume you've heard. Maybe you haven't heard. If you haven't heard, I would love to share the gospel message with you today. And, and if you would ask that question, I, I would be quick to sit down with you and share the simple message of the gospel. But let's assume that you've heard and you've understood. How, how will you respond to, the, to God's Son? How will you respond to the message that He alone is the Savior? He alone can solve your sin problem. He alone can solve the problem of your separation from God. You who are believers, who in your life has never heard or understood the message of the gospel? Do you even know? 
Are you willing for the sake of their eternal salvation to ensure that they have the opportunity to make a reasoned decision about Jesus? You say, well, that's not my job. Yes, it is. I'm making it your job right now. So consider yourself commissioned and sent, not because I said so, but because Jesus said so. At the bottom of that sermon notes form on the back, there's a little thing that says, pray for your one. And that harkens back to a sermon series we did several several years ago now, actually. And we said, look, there are a lot of people that we all know that don't know Jesus. And we can kind of become overwhelmed by the many. So why don't we focus on one? Who's your one? Who's that one person that that you're praying for on a regular basis and, and you're looking for opportunities to share the gospel with? Pray for your one. Who's your one? You are commissioned and sent. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, we, um, we want to be faithful to pray for those in our lives who don't yet know Jesus. We want to be faithful to pray for your people, Israel. And Lord, thank you that uh, as we pause here at the end of this passage, that this isn't the end of the story, but that you have a, a future plan for Israel. And so, Lord, help us to uh, stay tuned. Help us to um, come to understand that. Pray for that. Look forward to that day. Thank you that even now you are, we see the beginnings of a, an ingathering of the Jews who are coming to faith in Jesus. And, Lord, we know that we are in the last days. And so we look forward to that day when there will be a great turning of all of Israel. Until then, Lord, help us to be faithful to communicate the gospel where we are to those with whom we are. In Jesus' name, amen.